Uh, please stand for the reading of Scripture. Today's lesson is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First to be reconciled to your brother, and then to come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with an accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Ooh, it's kind of loud. Is that all right? All right. Well, as we've just heard read, this morning we're going to be looking together at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. And in order to rightly understand our passage this morning, and really in order to rightly understand everything else that comes in the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew, we have to recall what was said in the previous few verses. So our Lord has just finished teaching about how he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And this helps us understand that our passage uh, and the following passage is not disregarding the demands of the law, but is instead revealing them more clearly. In verse 20, we read, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, rather. And it's this statement that sets up all that follows through the end of chapter 5, as Jesus gives example after example of what it means for our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But does he mean that we must earn heaven by being even more scrupulous than they were in following the letter of the law. The Pharisees and the scribes were those that were meticulous in keeping the Old Testament law. You even remember the Apostle Paul, and speaking of his time as a Pharisee, he said that according to the letter of the law, he was blameless. Well, no, Christ is not endorsing a works-based salvation here, what was it that Jesus pointed out and spoke against the scribes and the Pharisees time and time again? It was their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness. They were trusting in themselves and their holy living to earn God's favor. In Matthew 15, he declared, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So our passage is pointing out that God is not interested in mere outward righteousness, 
but inward righteousness. So we must not approach our obedience to God as they did, which was essentially to allow strict observance of the law to serve as a cover and an excuse for inward malice. So what Christ is doing in this passage and those that follow is shattering self-righteousness, revealing that God judges us not by our outward conduct, but an inward integrity of the heart. And the first of the six examples he will give to elaborate on that truth has to do with murder. And so we'll look first here at this prohibition against murder. If you look to verse 21, we'll read that single verse and spend some time discussing it. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, this verse is very straightforward, though there are a few points that we would do well to spend a few moments on together. Of course, Christ is initially quoting from the Ten Commandments, which were given to Moses, the sixth of which we read in Exodus 2.13. It simply says, you shall not murder. And so Jesus' hearers would have been very familiar with this commandment, and this clear prohibition that the law of God makes against taking innocent life. And it's worth taking a moment to speak to the distinction between the familiar rendering of thou shalt not kill and you shall not murder. In addition to, to taking out the shall and the ye and thou's, uh, the, the language is different also in the change between kill in some of your older translations of scripture, like the King James Version, and murder, as we see in more contemporary translations. Well, why is that? Well, both in English and in Hebrew, the words murder and kill are related, but they are not synonymous. To kill, of course, means to take a life, either justly or unjustly, either purposefully or accidentally. To murder is to unjustly take a life and to do so with intent and forethought. That's why there's a distinction in the laws of our own land between murder, which is intentional and malicious, and that of manslaughter which may still require punishment in the legal system, but it was nevertheless unintentional and unplanned. So too in the Old Testament law, you are reading your Old Testament and you come across these cities of refuge. This was a place that someone could go to and flee to had they accidentally killed someone. They would flee to the city so someone could not come and take their life in retribution for the killing of their relative or their friend or whatever else. But to be clear, the word that is actually used here in the Hebrew, in the original, and also in the Greek that is spoken of in Matthew, does not refer to all killing, but to the intentional taking of innocent life, that which is premeditated and unjustified and wicked. This is why I don't believe that this verse can be used to mean that all self-defense is prohibited, or that a Christian cannot be a soldier at war, or that capital punishment is forbidden. Indeed, we see in Scripture times in which Israel is commanded to go to war, where the enemies of Israel are slain, 
And we read in Leviticus 24, 17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. So it's clear that Jesus refers specifically to actual murder here. And as had long been taught, and as they would have heard it said to those of old, those who commit murder are liable to judgment. That is, they stand guilty before the courts of law and to the punishment of that crime. And this is good and this is right. Though we know that Jesus is going to be setting up a contrast in verse 22 with the words, but I say to you, we can be sure that he is not saying that punishing murderers is inappropriate. Those who commit murder are liable not only to stand before God for their sin, they are in this life liable to judgment before human courts of law. This is that, that civil or that second use of the law that Caleb spoke of last week, that threefold use of the law, the second being to restrain and to punish evil. And though the laws of man cannot change the heart, they can inflict punishment as a deterrent to the committing of crime. And the application of this verse is quite plain. God forbids taking innocent life. And so we must not murder in any form, whether that is the intentional killing of another individual or the killing of the unborn or the euthanization of the elderly or self-murder or, or whatever other form such unjust killing might take. And this is an accurate and faithful understanding of God's prohibition against murder. But as we continue in our passage, we're going to see that we can't view ourselves as guiltless in this regard simply because we have not, with our hands, taken another life. That is a shallow understanding limiting only to external action. That is what Jesus is going to make clear. So let's continue on and see how Jesus explains and then expands on this command and reveals that God is concerned not only about murder with our hands, but also murder in our hearts. Let's look at the explanation that Jesus gives. Looking here in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hells of fire. <clears throat> Note the authority that Jesus Christ has. Can you imagine going to church and listening to a preacher follow up reading a verse of scripture and then saying, but I say to you, I hope you would all just stand up and leave. But this is no way inappropriate for the son of man. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so if he, as God, the son, wishes to expand upon God's word and give us even greater revelation, this is perfectly within his right. Nevertheless, this must have been a shock to his hearers, or at least those who did not yet grasp who he was. And we see that some of that astonishment later in the book of Matthew in chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, 
for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And what is Jesus doing here and saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Well, he's, he's not changing the law. He's explaining it. He is effectively saying that it is not enough to be able to say that you have never physically murdered someone in order to count yourself guiltless before God. God is far holier than we grasp, and we are far more guilty than we realize. Jesus teaches us that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So while the common teaching was that the murderer is liable to judgment, we are told the same is true for the person who is angry with another. And this anger refers to a a settled, nursed animosity, holding a grudge, even being wrathful to the point of hatred. So this is not a righteous indignation, which is anger towards that which angers God. There is a place for that. We see Jesus himself demonstrate that in the Gospels and in turning over the tables of the money changers that were profaning the worship of God. This is not that. And I think many times we seek to excuse the anger that we have towards another in convincing ourselves that it is righteous anger when it is not. So many times it is a personal selfish anger out of jealousy or revenge or some other sinful motive. But why is it that Jesus is elevating in our mind the wickedness of anger in the inward man to the point where it is equated to the outward taking of life? Was that not because anger is the seed that leads to murder? That which was in our hearts leads to action. And we see Jesus teach that very thing in Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's out of the heart that murder comes. This is why 1 John 3, 15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. The heart of the commandment against murder is based in the reality that we are all made in God's image. This is the basis of the command that murderers be put to death. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. It has to do with us being image bearers of God. We have intrinsic worth and value. So to murder another individual is a heinous crime. To allow anger and hatred to dwell in our hearts is to harbor murderous and wicked feelings towards them while restraining ourselves from acting upon them. And Jesus is making plain that God does not look at our ability to keep our sin to ourselves as being true righteousness. This is an area where it is so easy to conceal our sinfulness behind a smile, to interact with someone in a pleasant way and yet detest them inwardly. And this must not be true of us as followers of Jesus Christ. We cannot content ourselves with mere outward observance of the letter of the law, 
but should instead yearn and strive for inward conformity to the intent of the law. Those who are angry with another, with their brother, are liable to the judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That is, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, their high court. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, depending on which translation you read, you may have uh, whoever insults his brother rendered as, and whoever says to his brother, Raka. Now, Raka is a derogatory saying, something that is very difficult to translate into English. That's why many translations just transliterate it and put Raka in there. It's it carries with it a great deal of contempt and derision. It's an insult. As best we can tell, it has a meaning along the lines of, of calling someone an idiot or an empty head or an airhead. But in force, it was to make explicit that the, you viewed this person as worthless. They had no value to you. Such language is designed to, to cut another person who is made in God's image and is therefore unacceptable in his sight. So too is saying, you fool, which in this context has more to do with, with immorality than idiocy. It's saying that they're too stupid to understand how to live a life pleasing to God. And both of these words and, and countless other words like them, these are overflows of an angry heart. And Jesus says they put us in danger of hellfire, for they are sins against God and they are sins against others. How often have we secretly held contempt for another person? How often has that anger and contempt become not so secret when we share words of derision either about that person or even directly to them as we give vent to our inward feelings. Jesus tells us that in doing so, whether we successfully hide such feelings from others or not, we are in violation of God's prohibition against murder. We have committed murder of the heart. Jesus' explanation of the commandment makes self-righteousness impossible. For none can point to the command and say that we have kept this from our youth up. Instead, we stand guilty before a holy God. Even if outwardly we seem righteous to others, now having made this abundantly clear, Christ goes on to give a practical application of these truths. How should we then live according to what Jesus is teaching here. So let's look at that application. We'll be looking at verses 23 and 26. He, he caps off his explanation of this command with two examples of the practical implications and applications of this truth. And at first glance, it might seem a bit unrelated or difficult to understand. But let's look at it closely. We'll consider the context, and I think we'll gain a better understanding of what Jesus is teaching. Looking in verses 23 to 26. So, 
If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So what is going on in this part of the passage? Maybe you would expect examples to be more about a repentance for harbored anger toward another rather than our sin against another and what at first might appear to be just good legal advice. But let's remember what has come before these verses. One, Jesus has been teaching that God looks to the heart and not solely towards the outward actions. Second, God cares greatly how we treat and regard others who are made in his image. And so in these two examples, we see both of those things explored in practical terms. We actually see the opposite of murder, anger, and disdain for others. Rather than a heart of anger and murderous thoughts, we see a heart inclined towards reconciliation where a relationship has been broken, specifically where we are the cause of that break due to our sin and to our folly. Likewise, rather than going through the motions of outward religious duty, we see such duties interrupted in order to set things right with another person. You can see how this fits in with what the Apostle Paul says from refraining from taking communion wrongly. We're to examine ourselves, we're to confess our sins before God, and when necessary, wait to partake, into it, partake in it until we can make things right with others. Here in verses 23 to 24, Jesus reveals that God is far more interested in our heart attitudes towards our fellow man than he is in ritual observance of ceremony. Outward religiosity does not absolve us of inward animosity. Can we truly love God with all our heart, soul, and strength while simultaneously failing to love our neighbor as ourselves? Now, to be clear, this is not to say that God is uninterested in sacrifice and worship and outward observances. Rather, he is uninterested in taking these things from one who inwardly has their heart far from him. In fact, I think we can go quite a bit farther than saying merely that God is uninterested in such hypocritical religious service. He detests it. Matthew 23, 23, in speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. Further on, verse 27 of Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In the Old Testament, this is spoken by God in Jeremiah 7, 9 to 10. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? God does not want heartless worship and sacrifice and service. So in contrast, Christ says that the one who remembers that he has offended a brother is to first seek reconciliation before offering a sacrifice to the Lord. And the one who has been accused, and in context, I think we presume rightly accused of wrongdoing, should seek to come to terms with their accuser before coming before the judge, lest they be thrown into prison until they can pay the full measure of what they owe. Now, surely this is wise advice for those that are entangled in legal troubles. But there is, of course, more to it than that. If, if slanderous words put us in danger of judgment and hellfire, so too do unreconciled wrongs bring us before the wrath of God as our judge. And to neglect to set things right before we run out of time in this life is to be cast down to hell, to pay the full measure of our infinite debt of sin, which of course can never be satisfied apart from the infinite sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So what is being said in these verses of application? Well, Sinclair Ferguson summarized these verses this way. These two examples are not pieces of advice or laws, either for church behavior or for solving legal problems. They are rather illustrations of how vital it is to have right relationships with others. The illustration of the man in church underlines the necessity of reconciliation. The illustration of two men going to court underlines the urgency of reconciliation. Animosity is a time bomb. We do not know when it will go off. We must deal with it quickly before the consequences of our bitterness get completely out of control. So this is what God would have us do. It is the opposite of the inclinations of the flesh to harbor ill will, to speak against, or even to murder another person. It goes against the self-righteous and hypocritical practice of pretending all is well on the outside while giving quarter to sin in our hearts. It prevents us from offering unacceptable worship to a holy God. So how is it that, that we can apply the entirety of this passage to our lives? Well, clearly to suggest that this teaches only that none of us are to commit actual physical murder would be to miss the point entirely. Though you must not murder anyone. That much is clear. But it's more than that. This passage and the following passage in chapter 5 of Matthew make clear to us the standards by which God judges the heart. 
It is not by outward action only, but more so by heart attitude. We can never fool God into seeing us as better than we are because we sing along at church or we serve in some capacity or we give generously or we're nice to other people or anything else. We cannot rely on self-righteousness. Every one of us is a murderer because God looks on the heart. When Jesus forces us to confront the truth that, truth that God is far holier than we realize and that we are far more guilty of transgressing his law than we think, we become painfully aware that we cannot live up to God's standards. In our passage, we see that every one of us is a murderer for all have had anger towards another. Jesus' point that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees was not meant as a call for us to work harder than they did. It was meant to reveal that it is the heart that drives the actions, and a heart that is far from God cannot be compensated for by lips that praise Him or by hands that serve Him. Last week, we were taught about the, the threefold use of the law. The first use being to reveal to us that we are incapable of keeping God's law on our own. Well, surely Jesus' teaching on murder shows that to be true. I dare say that the average person in any given society can proceed through all of life without violating the letter of the law when it comes to refraining from taking innocent life. However, none of us can live long without encountering sinful feelings of animosity or anger towards another. And clearly, if such things as murder proceed from the heart, from the inward parts, it is not a change of action or greater restraint from the evil that we are capable of that is needed. Our self-righteousness is completely shattered when we are forced to see that we need a new heart. But we do not despair. Recall how Jesus said in the prior verses that he came not to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill it. He fulfilled the law perfectly in our place. And his perfect righteousness can be applied to us when we put our faith in him. This is why the Lord Jesus did not wander randomly out of the desert at 35 years old and walk straight to the cross in Jerusalem. No, he lived a full and sinless life on our behalf so that on the cross when our guilt was applied to him, his perfect righteousness was applied to us. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We cannot keep God's law perfectly. We've seen this morning that we can't even keep the law against murdering, which most of us otherwise, without this passage, would seem to have fulfilled quite easily. 
but we all stand guilty before God. And as scripture makes clear time and again, we need a new heart. That is just what Jesus came to do. He came to give us his righteousness, to pay the debt for our sin, and to give us a new heart. This was foretold by the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And so we are enabled to live in ways pleasing to God that otherwise we cannot. Well, how else can we apply this? Well, as it pertains to the second use of the law, which is the civil use used by societies to restrain evil, it's quite clear that governments and nations must outlaw, guard against, and punish murder. Although internal feelings of anger remain in the spiritual realm to be dealt with by our heavenly judge, the laws of the land ought to abide by God's law. In a nation that not only tolerates, but applauds and actively promotes the killing of the unborn, I believe that it is at least adjacent to apply our passage that we must do what we can as sojourners in this land to bring about the the abolition of that evil. We should pursue outlawing, outlawing all forms of murder. Finally, the third use of the law has to do with revealing to us, particularly revealing to believers, what is pleasing to God. Now that we have been granted Christ's righteousness and our own debt of sin has been paid, now that we have been given a new heart and enabled to obey God's law, at least to far greater extent than we could beforehand, though we will still stumble and sin, We see here what it is and how to go about pleasing God. Surely we can say that murder is displeasing to God, and our passage revealed how much even anger is displeasing to Him. The the obverse of that reality is to see that repenting of even our inward thoughts is pleasing to God. To refuse to tolerate lesser sins in an effort to pursue a heart righteousness that honors God and His commands is pleasing to God. Such repentance is not solely accomplished in private prayer, though it is always God first and foremost whom we sin against. It is also to be sought through personal reconciliation. A passage like this often has the uncomfortable effect of bringing to mind those who may have something against us those whom we have been angry towards, those who we have spoken evil against, and even those that we have hatred for rather than forgiveness. Well, what is honoring to God in those situations? It is not to smother our sense of conviction with outward obedience. Rather, it is to leave our gift at the altar either figuratively or literally, and go and be reconciled with our brother before we offer our worship to God. For God desires worship and sacrifice and obedience that begins inwardly in the heart and is then made manifest in outward action. 
may we seek this kind of righteousness, a righteousness which, by the power of His grace at work within us, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Let's pray. Lord, so often your word confronts us with our sin. So often we see that your standards are are far higher than we are willing to recognize. And Lord, that, that discomfort, that pain does us good. It does us good, Lord, while we are outside of relationship for Jesus because it exposes to our heart our desperate need for a Savior and our complete inability to earn salvation. Lord, too, we see that there is a blessing in that discomfort when we are safely in Jesus Christ, that we must not allow ourselves to lower the standards that you have set before us, to be content with living in ways that do not honor you, but instead we must seek to do what is pleasing in your sight at all times, even to the point of keeping tabs and policing our own inward thoughts and heart attitudes towards others. But even this, Lord, we cannot possibly do on our own. So we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit living within us. May may we be attentive to the Spirit as we go about each and every day of our life. That we would not ignore what He has to teach us, but rather that we would be very sensitive to conviction, to the warnings that you place within our heart, that we would know and be confident in understanding where we truly are at in relation to our obedience to your law. So we ask God as we consider these things that this would not... um, this would not put us in a place where we, we sit in, in despair, but rather that we would see the great gift that you have given us in revealing the, these things to us. That we might be motivated to do uh, what is right in relation to individual relationships as well as in relation to you. So we ask now as, as we close our service, as we uh, go from here throughout this week and moving forward, that you will help us to be mindful just how truly holy you are and how much we need Jesus Christ and help us to, out of an overflow of joy and thanksgiving in our heart, may that manifest itself in actions which are pleasing to you. Pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you, Brother Clay. Well, we approach now as we do every week at the end of our service, the Lord's table. And these, these passages, these, uh, there's six of these statements in a row in Matthew 5, where things that we, we might normally think we do pretty well with, if we just look at the rough letter of the law, where, where Christ just gets to the heart of the matter and shows us that we are truly radically depraved in our hearts, and that even the simple things are, are beyond us. They're beyond our ability to be faithful. Our, the, the righteousness that we think we could grasp, even if 
if we were to live lives like the Pharisees is, is empty, it's worthless, there is nothing there that we could do. But we, we thank God that as, as Christ gave us the, the harder, fuller picture of the intent of the law of God that speaks to the very heart of man, that Christ came to do that perfectly in our place. That he came, he sacrificed himself, he shed his blood, his body was broken so that we could achieve in him that level of righteousness. So praise God, even as we are reminded by the law and by the commands of Christ that we are not worthy, that we cannot measure up, that the gospel shows us that Christ did. So as we we look to the table, if that is your claim, if you are clinging to the righteousness of Christ as your righteousness, if you're walking in faithfulness, in obedience to him. Remember that just because we trust in Christ does not mean that we can throw away any commandment or any expectation of Scripture about how we should live our lives. It actually, far from that, faith in Christ actually enables us to believe and to follow and to be obedient. And we remind ourselves every week as, as we take of the Lord's Supper that, that we don't do that perfectly. And it's a very tangible reminder that it is the broken body and shed blood of Christ that he did once for all for the forgiveness of sins. It is that standard, that sacrifice, that righteousness of Christ that allows us to walk confidently before him, that, that in which we know that we will be able to stand before the Father and plead the righteousness of his Son as our own. So if, if that is true for you, and if that is your, your plea before the Father that is Christ, then I invite you to come. If there is anything else, anything in your life that you, you are feeling really is, is causing a separation there, or any other reason that you, you feel is um, a legitimate reason to stay back, then, then it is not a shame to hang back from the Lord's Supper. It is actually, again, walking in obedience because knowing that our relationship with Christ and an extension of that in the church is actually worth that. So I invite you to come uh, in just a few minutes when we've all had a chance, then we'll partake together. If you would join me in prayer. Father, we confess our our complete and utter dependence on your Son. As we hold these elements in our hands and remember his sacrifice, remember your holy and perfect standard, how far we fell short of it, and how you sent your Son to be righteous in our stead. Father, may this this symbol, this act of remembrance be a fortification for our faith to restore our soul's joy, our contentment in Christ, 
our worship of him. Father, grow us in our faith, in our confidence, in our joy. Praises in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he continued, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And throughout this life and this age, we do continually remind ourselves of the broken body and shed blood of our Savior as the necessary requirement of our forgiveness. But we also know that there will come a time when it is no longer for us to sit to remember that, but we can be before our Savior and enjoying the feast with him as the bride is reunited with the groom and that joyful celebration that there will be.